0: I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely, and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen, over the last few years, how deeply compromised big media is, and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media and a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions, and not be compromised by financial, political, or corporate limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck, but that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive access to full videos, as well as the opportunity to submit questions to select guests ahead of interviews and live streams. Another great way to follow and support my work is on Substack where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode, can access subscriber-only video content, and engage with the comment section, subscriber-only chats and AMAs, and can keep up with my writing as well. Just head over to www.meganmurphy.ca to subscribe. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page, Don't forget to also click the follow button so you don't miss new episodes while you're there. And finally, get your The Same Drugs merch at Teespring. That's thesamedrugs.creator-spring.com. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with Philip Slayton, a Canadian lawyer, past president of PEN Canada, and the author of Anti-Semitism and Ancient Hatred in the Age of Identity Politics. Philip, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs, and really appreciate it.
1: Can I ask you a question to Megan? Yes. The, the Same Drug, why is that the title of your show?
0: Well, it's a whole bunch of things. Um, it, in the simplest way to explain it is that it's a reference to a song by uh, someone named Chance the Rapper that's called Same oh, Drugs. Yeah. And it's sort of about... Well, the of so- Ch- yeah, yeah, he's great. And I've, I'm a fan and I've been a fan for quite a long time. So I, the song is essentially about two people moving in different directions it's about sort of like a breakup but you know the we don't do the same drugs anymore is sort of a metaphor towards you know I want to move here and you're still hanging around doing these drugs and partying and I want to move on in a different life but so there's sort of like and at that point, you know, when I started the podcast, I was moving in a really different direction, I guess, politically and ideologically, and in terms of how I wanted to think about things and how I was sort of shifting my worldview, I guess, as someone who is a long-time, you know, lifelong leftist and feminist. I was sort of exploring and changing my mind about a lot of things, so that sort of seemed app. And then I also noticed at that time that a lot of other people were moving in that direction as well, uh, you know, sort of getting tired of the um, orthodoxy and wanting to explore more heterodox. Yeah, this, this word
1: heterodox is interesting. It's, it's, it's a fairly new word for me. I think it was Tara Henley who first used it. And I said, well, what, what's that, Tara? She explained what it is to me. But it's sort of a movement, right, in a sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, at some point, it was referred to as the intellectual dark web. Barry Weiss described it as that, which okay. was, you know, sort of, I guess, a group of people, a group of kind of intellectuals, journalists, um, think, you know, Jordan Peterson type, Dave Rubin, sort of questioning the dominant ideology and wanting to ask questions that you weren't supposed to ask and wanting to explore ideas and culture in ways that were perceived as taboo by the mainstream, by progressives. Um, So it was sort of, yeah, connected to that whole movement, I suppose. Um, Yeah. So I know it's it's probably confusing to some people if they don't know all that because they might think it's a direct reference to drugs, but it's not. <laughs> it's not a podcast about drugs.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have very little to say on that subject.
0: <laughs> That's fine. We, we I almost never talk about drugs on the podcast, um, except, you know, maybe like drug policy and addiction and things like that. Um, but okay, I want to talk about you. <laughs> You're my guest. You... Listen. <laughs> you, um, your most recent book is called "Anti-Semitism," that is, which correct. is apt considering the cultural moment we're in right now, um, and these really, really intense, polarized debates. I know that this is a very old conflict, and a very uh, <laughs> this debate has been going on for many, many, many years now in various ways, um. But things have heated up, of course, since the October seven attacks.:
1: You could say that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably putting it mildly. Um, I, I guess I, I first want to ask you what what anti-Semitism is. I know that's a big question, but you know you could you could easily describe it as hatred of Jews, but I think it's more complex than that.
1: Well, it is complex, and some of its complexity, I think, is being revealed in the last month or so. I mean, it is basically, essentially, as you say, it's hatred of Jews, but hatred of Jews for what reason? Hatred, hatred of Jews, and what else is in the mix? Is it, is it, for example, a, a dislike of Jewish people as people? Is it a dislike of their religion or their history? Is it a dislike? This is increasingly come to the fore now. Is it is it a dislike of the policies of the state of Israel, which are associated with Jews, and therefore, if you're opposed to those policies, you're you're anti-Semitic? So it's a constantly through history, so and even now, constantly shifting concept. You know, sometimes people say that originally, uh, the essence of being a Jew was religious, and and uh, anti-Semitism was directed towards religious Jews. So, for example, anti-Semitism in, in 15th century Spain and Portugal was directed towards Jews as people who practice a certain religion. Well, then people, some Jews, caught on to the idea that, well, the, the way to avoid it then was to convert to Christianity. So, And many people did that, not by any means the majority, but many people did that. So then the notion of what it was to be a Jew, the notion of what a, what what an anti Semite would be opposed to shifted from religious grounds to racial grounds. You can change your religion, but you can't change your race. And so for example, the whole Nazi Hitler approach to Jews was race based. It depended on who your parents and grandparents, sometimes just one grandparent was sufficient, were. And some people say now that it's shifted yet again. It went from religious to race. Now it's gone to now it's political. So the whole question of anti Semitism Who is a Jew? Why don't like or do like Jews? Is really political now, not religious. Mm -hmm. Religion, in fact, religion seldom figures in it, not racial, but political. So to answer your question, rather generally, it's a kind of shifting. It's not an easy concept, and it's a shifting concept through history, responding to whatever circumstances you find. I would just say, just to finish my answer, today, the last month or so since October seventh. The political has very much come to the fore. You know, the new anti-Semitism is based on politics, not race, not religion, politics.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, which is interesting because, I mean, you would think that being a Jew and therefore hating Jews or anti-Semitism would be about the it would be about something religious. I mean, the root of being a Jew is in the Jewish religion. But uh, you talk about this in your book, of course, and it's that that's even more complicated than just that. You talk about what it means to be a Jew. You know, who is a Jew? What is a Jew?
1: Well, that's another interesting uh, issue because, it, it, so for example, the, the Nazi regime, and to some extent the laws of the state of Israel today define who is a Jew according to, race parentage grandparents I meaning the, in the Nazi regime all that was necessary was to have one of your four grandparents who was Jewish for you to be considered by the Nazi state as a Jew so that that was that was um, a very kind of strict formulaic definition of what is a Jew but as I discuss in my book the approach in recent times buttressed by all kinds of thinkers and writers and sociologists and all the rest, is far from that. It's almost down down now to a question of self-identification. If you say you are a Jew, then you are a Jew. You may not observe Jewish religious practices. You may not speak Hebrew or Yiddish. You may not belong particularly to a Jewish community or a a Jewish congregation. But If you claim to be a Jew, that's sufficient. a lot of people would push back on that, of course, but that's the outer limits of what it is to be a Jew. So you're, you're you're quite right, Megan, to raise the issue, well, if you're going to hate Jews, who exactly is it you're hating? I mean, who are those people? Mm-hmm. And it, there's no easy answer to that.
0: And why? why what's behind the hatred? Um, particularly now, you say that anti-Semitism is political. And, you know, to be honest, I sort of naively didn't, I didn't realize how widespread anti-Semitism is now Um, in America, you know, not just around the world, but but in America, even in Canada, I don't think it's as notable in Canada as it is in the US. But what is that about? What is that hatred about? What is that anti-Semitism about? What's the root of that?
1: Well, I think it's a very, in its modern iteration, it's a very complex phenomenon. I mean, to begin with, as many people have observed through history, writers, politicians, uh, there's almost a visceral need that people have to hate somebody. It's part of the kit bag of being a human being, of somebody you hate. Uh, it's an essential part of psyche. And, and the more ordinary you are, the more grievances you have the more you feel that life has not treated you well, or the state has not treated you well, or the community is not treated you well, the more you look for someone to blame, the more you look for someone to blame, hate, and if possible, uh, oppress. And Jews have traditionally filled that role quite neatly. So that's part of it. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, Jews are a convenient object of hatred. Other people have said that they're convenient. They're there, there's a long history of hating Jews. It kind of fits in nicely. Um, So that's what part of it is. Part of it is not really, in my opinion, anti-Semitism at all. Today, for example, uh, in the age of identity politics, as as you know, my book to some extent is set in the context of the modern age of identity politics. In the the age of identity politics, uh, anti-Semitism is often based upon not particular uh, keen, uh, coherent Idea of what a Jew is or why you don't like them. It's part of who you are that you don't like people who are not like you. People who don't, do not have your lived experience, to use that horrible phrase. So that's another aspect of it. So, for example, on university campuses across North America, and I think elsewhere too today, there's a lot of anti Semitism being expressed by students, vociferous anti Semitism being expressed by students. But in my opinion, a lot of that really has little to do with Jews. It has something to do, of course, with the state of Israel and what's been happening in the Middle East. But it's, it's often caught up with a sense of grievances these students generally have. Uh, it's caught up with the general kind of trends and currents of modern society that people like dislike, students dislike. It's caught up in a feeling that they are not being treated fairly and will not be treated fairly when they leave university. And in a sense, it's almost incidental. That there is this convenient group to point the finger at and hate and uh, even hurt if you can. I mean, it's not a very it's kind of a woolly answer to your question, I think. But what I'm trying to say is, it's a complex phenomenon. It's not an easy thing at all. And I think the idea that some vast kind of anti-Semitic movement has suddenly come to the fore. And it's been triggered by the, the events in the Middle East is partly true, but it's much more complicated than that. I think a lot of these students, and I'm rather people than students, but students, let's pick students, who are protesting about what they see as Israeli policy or Jewish policy in the Middle East, couldn't find the Gaza Strip or Israel on a map, don't know anything about the history of these places, a very complicated history of these places have little understanding or any understanding of the kind of the geopolitics behind all of this, but nonetheless lash out because it makes them feel good and it's convenient.
0: Right. Which I think is what's behind a lot of modern activism, modern student-led activism. I mean, we saw the same thing or a similar thing happen with all those BLM rallies and protests. Right. I mean, I don't think that the vast majority of people protesting actually had any idea what the real situation was with police violence and whether or not it was racist and specifically directed at black people, which it doesn't seem to be according to statistics, Um, which isn't to say police violence isn't a problem, but that there's not a, a swath of racist cops out there shooting black people because they're black. But anyway, um, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's all been really disturbing to me. And again, that's putting it really mildly. mildly. I've been quite horrified. Um, Not just by the October 7th attacks, but at watching people celebrating um seeming rather thrilled by what happened um referring i know you talked to tara Tara henley about this as well um she referenced a speech by harsha walia who is from vancouver the city i'm from so i've been familiar with her for quite a long time she's prominent on the left there and you know in her her speech outside the vancouver art gallery she said something along the lines of you know isn't it wonderful that i have the quote here somewhere but i'm gonna paraphrase that these palestinians um fought for freedom you know they found freedom by learning how to fly paragliders you know isn't isn't this beautiful kind of thing
1: well i mean a couple of comments on that i mean i I can't remember the name of the woman i listened to some of that speech i couldn't listen to all of it tara henley sent me a link i listened to some of it it was a hiss in Uh, ill-informed, hysterical rant that was not worth listening to, and I didn't listen to all of it. Um, I mean, it it is the case, I think most relatively dispassionate observers of the Middle East over the last 50, 60, 70 years, since 1948, let's say, since Israel was created, it is the case that there's a lot of Israeli policy uh, and actions that are very questionable to say the least when it comes to the Palestinian community. I mean, I'm speaking now as a Jewish person myself. It's very troubling. Starting in 1948, so-called War of Independence of Israel, going through to, which involved the expulsion of about 700,000 Palestinians from land that they had settled on, those are the, that's the 700,000, most of whom are the parents and grandparents of the quote-unquote refugees who are now in the Gaza Strip. That's where they came from. The, the bad treatment of Gaza Strip and the blockade of Gaza Strip since 2006. And most of all, I think, the treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank as the settlements, the Jewish settlements on the West Bank expand. And there are other things. So even the treatment of the 2 million Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel, now 2 million Palestinians in Israel have full citizenship. But even those people, it is said, I'm not sure of the details, but it is said, a disadvantage, despite their full citizenship, in a whole variety of ways. So there's a lot you can say about this. Uh, you, there's a lot to be discussed. You know, there are, there's controversy surrounding it. I'm w- well aware of that. But there's a lot you can say about it. So you could stand up in front of the Vancouver Art Gallery if you want and give a speech about that, about how this the, the treatment of the Palestinians has been very bad, and something needs to be done about it. I mean, Nelson Mandela said this in the 1990s. I mean, this is not news, okay? Nelson Mandela was, I think, the first person to say that Israel was an apartheid state, and he knew an apartheid state when he saw one. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So there's nothing new about this. But what's to conflate that, conflate your feelings about that history and your feelings about possible injustices perpetrated upon the continuing injustices, perpetrated on the Palestinians, has absolutely nothing to do with paragliders or whatever these things were that enable terrorists to come into the state of Israel and murder women and children in the most brutal way possible. So that's a completely different issue. And to conflate these two, as this person whose name I can't remember, it shows, to say the very least, to put it charitably very sloppy thinking the inability to distinguish different things see the difference and not just put it all together in some horrible toxic stew
0: yeah and you know it's interesting because i i do see you know as much as i'm i'm new to this conflict and i'm trying to understand and learn as best i can um the situation in Gaza is awful um, and there are a lot of problems and Palestinians have been treated horribly in all this. But, you know, when when we talk about what I referenced earlier, which is sort of the, the horror at seeing people at these pro-Palestine rallies celebrating Hamas, saying anti-Semitic things, um and defending the terrorists as freedom fighters, um, you know, and then I, I'm constantly being told not to conflate being a supporter of Palestine with being a supporter of Hamas. And yet we are seeing these things be compla- conflated all the time at these rallies and by these people who are supporting Palestine or who are anti-Israel, however you want to put it, you know, I've been told many times one on one person to person, these aren't terrorists, they're freedom fighters. Of course they're doing this. this is what the resistance looks like. Um, and we've seen that you know repeated over and over and over again at these rallies. So whether or not these people want to admit it, it is being conflated and it's being conflated by the activists themselves in a lot of ways.
1: It is, and to me, that's uh, completely unacceptable. As I said a moment or two ago, it's an evidence of the inability to really understand the issues and to think clearly. It's, to me, it's that simple. Now, you know, we live in Canada and, and in the United States, I'm not sure about Mexico, in countries that value freedom of speech. And if somebody wants to stand up in front of an art gallery or anywhere else and talk about these issues, they're free to do so although it's an interesting question how free they actually are. If they're talking about what they perceive as the injustices perpetrated on the Palestinians over many years now, they're certainly free to do that. People can quarrel with them, say you've got your facts wrong or you're misinterpreting, whatever. That's a discussion. And a mature democratic society is basically founded on our ability to have those kinds of discussions and to disagree with each other. But if you go beyond that, and urge the destruction, the, the violence against the murder of Israeli settler colonialists, or you celebrate a uh, murder of such people that's already taken place, citizens, ordinary citizens, not soldiers, citizens, yeah. then the interesting question is, have you gone too far? And if you have, what are the consequences of that? Now, in Canada... There are very few legal limits on what you can say, which is a good thing. It's something I strongly support. I'm a freedom of speech guy. I believe you should be able to say just about anything. And what I always like to say is, maybe naively, is a sophisticated, well-educated, discerning population will deal with people who say stupid and ridiculous things by ignoring them, by laughing at them, whatever. You don't need the police. You don't need the courts. You don't need the judicial machinery to deal with them. In a mature democratic society, the citizenry deals with it. Now, that may be naive. Some people have said it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. But the question is, if somebody stands up and celebrates the terrorists, because they were terrorists, who murdered people on October the 7th, and even beyond that, suggests that that's a good thing and there should be more of it, as many people have done then is, that the, is it at that point that the law steps in? I mean, you know, hate, hate speech is a criminal offense in this country and there are other laws about it. So at what point does the state step in and say, okay, we have to do something about this? So that's one level. Another level, and I discussed this a little bit with Tara Henley is, and this is actually what, much more of what's happening in Canada at the minute, and I think in the United States too, is the institutional level. What is the responsibility of universities when all these things are going on? What is the responsibility of labor unions when all this stuff is going on? What is the responsibility of a political party when one of the members of the political party's caucus says something which is not criminal, not an offense of any kind, but it's in some way reprehensible. What is their responsibility to place this within the institutional context how much freedom should there be? And that's a very difficult question. To I are on the side of as much freedom as possible. But I think what you're seeing now is something different. What you're seeing now is, for example, can great pressure being brought to bear on university presidents and university administrators to stop people on their campus saying things that are upsetting other people. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in my day, which was admittedly was a long time ago, but in my day, one of the points of the university campus was the freedom to be able to say things that would upset other people. And the, the latitude you had to do that was quite considerable, as it should be, as it should be in the kind of country we live in, in Canada. But now, this is very concerning. I think now you seem to see a lot of people saying, for example, let's go back to the university context, um, wealthy donors to the university, potential employers of these students when they graduate, all these people saying Stop them doing that. Stop them saying that, or you'll lose our support. There won't be job offers for the law graduates of of, uh, Toronto uh, uh, University. Toronto. What's it called? TMU. I shouldn't have my grandson.
0: Or Harvard. I mean, they they were saying this about the the Harvard students who I think signed a letter that was blaming Israel for the attacks.
1: And that to me is very concerning because once universities, which is supposed to be one of the great bastions of free speech and inquiry, start for whatever reason, shutting down statements, shutting down free speech because it's upsetting people that they don't want to upset, then we're in trouble as a free society.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's a tough one to get your head around in some ways because I, I'm also a free speech supporter. I called myself a free speech absolutist a few times and then realized I probably shouldn't say that because I think saying that you support free speech should be enough. But the point is sort of that people will often say, I support free speech except for hate speech, you know, and then I'm like, well, that doesn't really count um, in my opinion. But I I wondered what, what actually would constitute a crackdown on free speech, and this context, people have been saying, you know, there's a crackdown on the free speech of the pro-Palestine activists. Um, and what was referenced in, in in defense of that statement were some of the things that you brought up. Um, you know, potential future employers of these students saying we want a list of people who signed this letter because we don't want to hire them. Um, people pulling funding from the universities. Um, and then someone sent me an example recently, which referenced, this is out of the UK, not Canada or the US, but, um, you know, I think it was about fining companies who supported BDS, um, you know, essentially punishing anybody who supported the, the boycotting. Of Israel, do you think that all of this constitutes a crackdown on free speech? I mean, where's the line here?
1: It's very, it's very tricky, Megan. Because so, supposing I, I'm not a I'm a very large uh, supporter, financial supporter of University X. And supposing I read or I learn that the students of University X are going to hold a big pro-Palestinian demonstration. And This upsets me because I'm not pro-Palestinian for whatever reason And so I ring out the university president. I say look, you know, I am a large financial supporter of this university if that if that Demonstration or that happens. I'm not supporting this university anymore. I just won't do it And so as a university president has to be very sensitive to that kind of thing because I mean, you know He's a amongst other things somebody needs to finance this university so as, as a donor, as, a, as an important donor to the university, I should be free to do that. I should be free to say, you know, it's the condition of my gift, my continued support, these things like this not happen. <coughs> and I may have considerable clout as a result of my lar- my largesse, my promised largesse. And the university present may feel compelled or feel it necessary or wise or prudent to do something in response to my request. Now, to me, That's a clear infringement on free speech, particularly uh, heinous because it happens within the context of university. But what's the poor university president supposed to do?
0: Mm.
1: So it's it's subtle. And the whole concept of freedom of speech, freedom to, to deploy your resources as you wish, freedom to say what you want, has many different aspects to it, particularly in a society which is riven by this horrible divide that we now have between the Palestinian those who support the Palestinians and those who don't those who support i guess you the state of israel Well, no it's not support the state of israel it's support a certain view of the state of israel and how the state of israel can behave so it's a very complicated issue and in a large and complex civil society like canada for example with many organizations people wanting to express their views and often in a very controversial fashion who gets to say what, who is subject to what kinds of control, it's complicated. But I, like you, I'm a free speech absolutist. So I think always one should err on the side of allowing people within very wide, giving them a very wide latitude to to say what they want. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you believe in the... Legal concept of hate speech, which is to say, you know, of course there's such a thing as hateful speech. Of course there's such a thing as dangerous speech. But do you believe that there should be any limitations on what people can say to the point where somebody could be criminalized for engaging in what's defined as hate speech?
1: Oh, for sure. An obvious one is incite to violence. I mean, you can stand up on a soapbox. And say, okay, folks, let's go out tonight and kill some Jews. You can't that's a criminal offense, a very serious mm-hmm. criminal offense. We can't do that. And I don't think even a free speech absolutist would say that was okay. It's not okay. But but, but you can stand up on the soapbox and be highly critical uh, of the Jewish people, the state of Israel, its policies What whatever you can do that. Now, of course, people would say, Well, wait a minute. The line that separates these two cases is not not is maybe pretty thin you may not actually advocate violence but you can give a speech without advocating violence that will in fact incite violence make people so angry that they'll want to go out and do something rash so again it's very there's no easy there's no easy answer to this um, but I, but I, but see what I what I believe in again this comes back to my naivete which I've been accused of more than once what I believe in is the, the strength, the efficacy, efficacy of a discerning, well-educated, careful-thinking public who can look at things like that speech by that lady in front of the Vancouver Rock Gallery, getting back to that, and say, this is rubbish, you know, this, this is, I don't believe any of this. I, I, this is just nonsense. And the story I like to tell is, it was back many, many years now when I was going to do graduate studies in England. Uh, and on the way there, I talked to someone who'd been to the same university that I was going to. This person, who had been, actually been private secretary to Mackenzie King, which tells you how old he was and I am. This person said, ah, oh, he said, well, at that place, they only teach you really one thing. But it's a really important thing and that thing is they teach you how to know the difference between a good argument and a bad argument there is a difference between a good argument and a bad argument and it's incumbent upon any every citizen to try and find, make make that distinction and so you listen to these people say bad argument <laughs> i'm not convinced you know i'm going somewhere else but but what i find so distressing now particularly in the current circumstances is there seems to be no ability to do that there seems to be no ability to separate out the issues there seems to be no ability to recognize what's ridiculous and wrong and what isn't and that that's concerned i mean in the united states just to put a footnote to this i would have thought recent politics in the united states has shown a huge lack of capacity to distinct almost a, a, a Not just a lack of capacity to distinguish good arguments and bad arguments, but a devil-may-care attitude. Who cares what's a good argument? Who cares what's a good argument? I'm driven by things other than that.
0: I'm a writer and a podcaster, which means I can't sleepwalk through life. My brain is my most important tool, so not only do I need to keep my energy up, but my mind needs to be sharp. I work for myself, which means I need to self-motivate and make sure that I can focus in order to be as productive as I can on a daily basis. Focus is something I've always struggled with. We all know how easy it is to get distracted, especially when you're trying to do a million things at once. So I can't tell you how relieved I was to find Magic Mind. It doesn't replace my beloved wake-up coffee, but I drink it a little later in the afternoon as a pick-me-up to help me stay focused and productive throughout the day. Magic Mind has these things called nootropics, which improve cognitive function, meaning they boost my attention span, my ability to process and learn new information, and improve my notoriously bad memory. Lion's made mushrooms help reduce anxiety, which is something I work hard to keep in check by living a balanced lifestyle, but of course still pops up from time to time, when I'm feeling like I'm not staying on top of my goals. It also helps reduce inflammation, which is something I've struggled a bit with over the past few years on account of an old knee injury, as discussed on Joe Rogan. And of course, the matcha in there keeps my energy levels up. If you want to give Magic Mind a try as part of your daily routine, go to magicmind.com slash same drugs and use my discount code same drugs20 to get up to a whopping 56% off of your subscription that's magicmind.com slash same drugs code same drugs20 what do you think about that phrase that's such a a prominent chant at these pro-Palestine rallies, which is "From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free." I've heard a lot of people say that that's anti-Semitic, um, and even that it's hate speech. That it's it's no,
1: it's not anti-Semitic, and it's not hate speech. I mean, it's 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 kind of a code, of course, for things that might be regarded as anti-Semitic and hate speech. But what it really what what you could interpret the phrases meaning, and there are many responsible thoughtful, knowledgeable people who believe this, is there should be a a one-state solution. There should be one state, which includes uh, both Jews and Palestinians, and that state would run from the river to the sea. It's really looked at in that way and argued for a one-state solution, which is a perfectly reasonable and at one time it was almost a respectable theory for various largely demographic reasons. It's almost certainly not going to work. But that phrase by itself, I think, is not anti Semitic and it's certainly not hate speech. Now, if what it really is, and it's clear that it is, is a thinly veiled, thinly disguised uh, uh, incitement to the Palestinians to seize uh, all the territory from the river to the sea and in the process eliminate the Jews who live there, which is some seven million, that's different. But that Mm -hmm. phrase, In and of itself, I don't regard as anti-Semitic. One of the things I agree, my my book came out about six or seven months ago. And it now now seems that I look at it as like a quaint historical artifact. Because recent events have so dramatically overtaken some of the things that I try to talk about. But as you will know, one of the things I talk about, and we've already dealt with this, is it is not anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionism. To, Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitic. Anti-Zionism is to be critical of and to resist certain policies, historical and current, of the State of Israel. It's not to say, I hate Jews, and that's different. Um, but that's a distinction, which I think is a very important distinction, which is, seems in recent days to completely gone by the board. Something else I wanted to say too, you haven't directly asked me about this, but I'll say, so I was listening to the C B C News. You may remember the CBC. <laughs>
0: I haven't listened in quite a few years now, but I, I grew up on the C B C. So yes, yeah, I remember. But
1: <laughs> on the C B C News, there was the predictable, frequent statement from neighbors, Canada or some Jewish organization or the police. Anti Semitic incidents have gone up thirty five percent in the past week, you know, X number you see that in the United States all the time. And you see it in Europe all the time, too. One of the points I make in my book is, wait a minute. There are anti-Semitic incidents, and there are anti-Semitic incidents. Not every incident is the same as every other incident. And I propose in my book a typology of four kinds of anti-Semitic expressions of anti-Semitism. And the most common form of anti-Semitism is it's just pretty really a lack of civility. It's like chalking up a swastika on a, wall, on a wall or yelling dirty Jew as a Jewish person walks down the street. Very unpleasant. Should be resisted. Uh, should not happen. Nasty. But it doesn't presage the next Holocaust. That's my point. Mm-hmm. And then you go through an escalating typology which ends up with very serious forms of anti-Semitism which need to be resisted at all costs. My point is not everything is the same as everything else. You need to bring some discrimination to the analysis. It, you know, seven hundred and thirty-one incidents last week. Well, what were they? Before we all get hysterical, what were they? What happened? And again, that's an example of what I would call sloppy, careless, and ultimately dangerous thinking.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I as I've said, I'm pretty. I'm pretty open to most anything in terms of speech of course with the exception of um incitement to genocide incitement to violence um which you say of course is already a, a criminal offense um yeah I mean I think I think I sort of feel comfortable referring to certain statements and imagery as hateful, maybe even as hate speech, but I don't necessarily want to to criminalize that. Um, There was this image, for example, going around of this young woman. She was a student, um, I believe a Norwegian student, and she was holding up this sign, and it said... "I." It was very confusing to me, to be honest. Um, Maybe it shouldn't be. It said, keep the world clean. And then it has the image of a person putting a star of David into a garbage can. And she was interviewed about the sign and said, oh, no, no, it's not about hatred of Jews. I love Jews. It's all it is is about criticism of the Israeli government. And I was like, does she actually believe that does anybody actually believe that i mean it was i couldn't believe that i was looking at this sign in the midst of a pro-palestine rally this young blonde woman holding it up proudly and and then she said and she didn't seem as though she was lying but I, i you know all i can think is maybe she has no idea what she's talking about or maybe she is just a really good liar
1: well, that's an interesting little incident, a little story. I mean, I, haven't, I don't, haven't heard that story before. But if you pause it, so, I mean, the slogan, keep the world clean, keeps was that what it was? Keep the world clean. Or, right, yes, the
0: keep the, the world image, clean.
1: The image connected to it is so stupid. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's just stupid and juvenile and ridiculous and not worth, to, in my opinion, not worth taking seriously. Why would you take that seriously? Why would you pay any attention to it? Why would you even discuss it? Now, some people, when I say that sort of thing, come back with, ah, oh, well, that's how it begins. It's all very well for you, Philip Slate, to say it's, it doesn't mean anything, forget about it. You know, Go home and have a, have a double malt scotch and just forget about it, because that's how it begins. And there's lots of evidence of that, that that's how it begins. So, for example, I talked in my book about Stefan Zweig, uh, uh, an author that I admire tremendously. In, in his day, a famous Jewish writer, Austrian, talked about how when the Nazis came to power in Germany in 1933, people who in Vienna and other places in Austria didn't bother about it in the slightest. You know, they there were a few things that started happening fairly quickly in the Nazi regime, which Seemed kind of ugly and unpleasant, but nobody paid much attention to it because they, won't, they they didn't see it as a huge deal. But look what it led to! It's the look what it leads to argument that can be very powerful, but also very destructive. Not everything leads to some t- catastrophe. Most things do not lead to some, some catastrophe. If some silly Norwegian student w- walks around with a placard such as that, that's not going to lead to any catastrophe. I would just dismiss it out of hand, and you know, call up her parents and say, you know. You should just keep this kid at home for a while or something. Megan, why invest them? Why give them an agency that they don't deserve? Why why give them a stature that they have no claim to at all? Why pay any attention to these people?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see both ends of the argument because, I I mean, with that, with that situation and with so many of these activists, again, especially the student activists, you you said something to this effect earlier, but you know, I don't think they have any idea what they're talking about. I don't really think they have any idea what it is that they're rallying for or against, but they think they're on the right side of history. They think they're doing the right thing. Um, it makes them feel good about themselves. They're in a crowd of people they want to fit in with. Um, and they've been told who's good and who's bad, and they're going to go with that. Um, yeah, no, I agree I, with
1: that. I think a lot of these, for example, student demonstrations, ostensibly are supporting Palestine, are not really about that at all. They're about all these other things: you know, the, the desire to be one of the one of the, the crowd, the desire to join with your friends to shout slogans, the desire to relieve the boredom that you're experiencing, the desire to express your frustrations and fear of the future. You may may or may not have. It's about all kinds of things. This is just a useful kind of outlet, but as you say. Uh, Is there any real knowledge or understanding or discrimination or careful thought behind all of this? Sometimes yes, but mostly no. There are a lot of very smart people, maybe not a lot, but certainly some very smart people who thought long and hard about about all these issues, have written very perceptive and important books about these issues, uh, expressing different kinds of views. Now, they deserve to be taken seriously. They deserve to be uh, read carefully. They deserve to be talked to, but not these other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I worry about it when it gets to violence, and we have seen some violence. Um, and again, when it gets to incitement to violence, and crowds can get worked up, and I think things can get quite scary, and I think it probably would feel scary to be on a campus with these kinds of protests happening, and you're a Jew, um, and you feel quite outnumbered. That's a,
1: that's a different issue. Yeah, I agree with, I agree entirely with that. I mean a lot of the horrible, destructive, mindless mass movements in history were based upon ideologically, intellectually, very little, very little. They were just making a kind of mass populist movement, a great crowd that was moved by powerful oratory or despair of the circumstances or whatever. They didn't even really know what they were doing half the time. That's a big, difficult force to fight against. I I appreciate
0: that. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in Canada, specifically with free speech, because I think, um, I think that now there are, I think Canada has been really complacent on the issue of free speech, especially as compared to America. America is a lot more rah, rah, rah about their free speech rights, which I respect. Um, And, I think that a lot of Canadians sort of didn't really think about the issue that much. And I count myself as one of those Canadians for many years. Um, I didn't oppose free speech, but I just didn't really think about it. I didn't really bother to advocate for free speech. I think I probably just assumed it was something I had and would always have. Um, And then what happened throughout COVID really woke people up. It woke me up. Um, to the fact that you could lose your free speech. And there have been a number of bills that Trudeau's liberal government has either introduced or passed that are concerning, um, including C-11. Are you familiar with that law? I don't
1: know what C-11
0: is. So that's the Online Streaming Act. So it's about, purportedly, it's about promoting CanCon. It yeah. regulates what Canadians see online on the basis that the CRTC wants to promote Canadian content. Um, but, you know, yeah, first of all, I think that it it's concerning that the Canadian government or a Canadian government regulatory board would have control over what's com- turning up in your algorithm, essentially on YouTube or whatever. But then there's also more recently been an announcement that um that platforms that host podcasts are going to in canada are going to have to register with the canadian government or sorry podcasts uh, platforms that host podcasts that canadians will hear you know that are accessible to canadians will have to register with the canadian government um so i'm curious to know what you think about these bills and if you're worried about them
1: well the first thing i would do is put in a plug of course for the book that I wrote before the book on anti Semitism, which was called Nothing Left to Lose, and was exactly a study of the freedoms or the erosion of the freedoms that we all have in Canada, including freedom, primarily the freedom of speech. One of the arguments in that book was that Canadians have been unduly complacent about this issue, they haven't paid it the attention it deserves. And of course, when that happened, and various other ancillary things have taken place that have eroded freedoms in this country. And one of the things I mentioned, for example, is the deterioration of universities and as a bastion of free speech. Various places, free free independent press, another one, various places where guardians had a role to play in protecting and promoting free speech, their positions been eroded, often very dramatically, and we're heading for trouble. So that, that's a kind of a general theory I've had. It's good old boring, you know, complacent, comfortable, peaceful Canada that we don't have to worry about anything. We're, we're finding out maybe that's not strictly true. So That's the first thing. Now, when it comes to social media, because which of course has completely changed the environment, the free speech environment, and not just the free speech environment, I've done a bit of a flip-flop on that one because and, and, and by the way, this is very closely connected to the whole question of anti-Semitism because, of course, social media is used as an engine by people with an axe to grind, for example, anti-Semitism, often very effectively to stoke those fires in a very un, irresponsible and unreliable way. When it comes to social media, the question is, can, is there any role for government or anybody in the regulation of social media? I say anybody, because so, for example, Facebook and X, formerly known as Twitter, as we're supposed to say now, have its own content rules and quasi-censorship. Is there any role for anybody in regulating social media, including podcasts, if I can throw in podcasts as part of that? Again, that's a difficult one. Initially, I thought, yes, there was i thought that the certain kinds of harms and damages that could be done by social media that the price was too high the question was how you deal with that that's another issue but i've done something of a flip flop on that because i've come to the conclusion that no you know you you can't try and do that with you just got to let it rip so to speak subject of course to the broader principles that we were talking about like in, you know in, incitement of violence. So you just got to let her rip. And and I fall back upon my naive principle I've mentioned two or three times already in this podcast, which is you have to rely upon the consumers of social media to discriminate, to be able to do what my old friend said, to find, distinguish a good argument from the bad argument. As difficult as that can be in the hyper febrile atmosphere that surrounds social media. I mean, uh, this may not be a very satisfactory answer, but that's my answer. Now, there, there should be control, controls on one aspect of this, which is trolls, um, you, know, you know, targeted use of social media uh, by governments or by other institutions, which really subvert the whole social media uh, principle. Now, one of the things about social media is um, is in some ways it's the true bastion of free speech because as many people have said, this is certainly not original to me, it gives a voice, often a powerful voice, to people who never had one before. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And you don't want to mitigate that voice. You don't want to demean it. You don't want to diminish it. You want to let rip subject to some very general... Specific, not, not general, some very specific rules and regulations, but minimal. So that's my flip-flop. I I'm now, as I say, basically <clears throat> think that uh, social media should be left alone, and the bill you refer to, and the, the, which is, by the way, of interest to Penn Canada. I used to be president of Penn Canada, I no longer am. But it's caught the attention of freedom of speech organizations. This has to be taken very seriously
0: yeah i think so too um and i mean one of the one of the reasons why i left canada was not just you know i you know i I love mexico (laughs) i'm happy here but i i left because of the covid mandates and restrictions which i was really concerned about and I was worried about my free speech because I saw these bills that the, the Liberal Party was uh, introducing and I worried because, you know, my work is, so much of my work is critical of the government and of the Canadian government and Canadian government policies and popular ideology and all that. And I just thought, you know, if I stay in Canada, I'll be screwed. I might not be able to work. Um, I I... I I've heard some people say we don't actually have free speech in Canada. You know, there are robust free speech laws, free speech protections in America that we don't have in Canada. What are the free speech laws in Canada? How do they differ from American free speech protections?
1: Well, I think people would say that are not being entirely correct. I mean, there is a guarantee in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms of free speech. It's a charter guaranteed right. That means quite a lot. Um, beyond that, legislation can be struck down if it's found to infringe that charter right, struck down by the court. beyond that, as I think I said earlier on, there's very little, very little in the way of government interference in limitation of free speech. I think the thing you have to focus more, more closely on, as I we discussed earlier on, is what's happening at a level or two below government institutional what's happening in institutions very important institutions that control a lot of people's lives you know the workplace large corporations unions universities student unions etc that's where i think the free speech action is by and large not that's i think where we have to be careful that's where we have to monitor what these people are doing people subject to the influence that i said before in the case of universities large donors in the case of labor unions membership in the case of corporations, boards of directors, shareholders, all there's all kinds of people who can exert pressures on these institutions in all kinds of ways. So you have to focus in on that. The government is an easy one in the sense because it's lot, by and large transparent. You can see what they're doing. You, know, you can take a pot shot at them if you don't like what they're doing. But there's this whole subterranean thing going on that, that's very hard to come to terms with, very hard to understand, very hard to identify, and that's, I think, what you have to be careful about.
0: Do you think that there should be any changes made to Canadian free speech protections that would better protect Canadians in terms of their freedom of expression?
1: No, there's nothing, there's nothing easy or glib that comes to mind, particularly. I mean, I'm somebody, I'm sitting here in downtown Toronto and I'm somebody who has a lot of opinions about a lot of things. Um, I don't feel, constrained at all when it comes to uttering my opinions. I have a number of friends who similarly, I won't say they're hotheads, but they are full of full of opinions. Uh, some of them are in positions which enable them to express their opinions publicly and attract a fair amount of attention when they do so. I don't think any of these people uh, that I'm talking about, including me, feel constrained or they feel frightened or you know we have to be Now you could say well you know you're in a very exceptional position it's easy for you but it's not easy for lots of other kinds of people who have to be worried about well could they lose their job for example if they say something that their employer is going to be upset about that's where the action is but I don't see any easy you know general government action that needs to be taken I mean I, I feel that I live in a country which does respect freedom of speech but of course the price of freedom is eternal vigilance Right? you can't sit back and forget about it, think all is well and all will always be well because it won't if you don't pay attention
0: yeah exactly, I think that is one of the key conclusions that I've come to in recent years which is that you have to continue fighting for these rights or you lose them, that you can't really ever become oh, yeah, well, complacent history
1: teaches us that I think maybe
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation. It was really interesting talking to you and and your book, Anti-Semitism was also really interesting to me. Um, So thank you for for sending it my way. I appreciate it. Can you tell our listeners um, how to find your work, how to find, I think you've written about eight books. Is that right?
1: That is correct.
0: Goodness Uh, gracious. (laughs) Not all
1: of them are good. Um the easiest way to the easiest way to to find sort of more about me in the books is to go to my website, which is www Or is it dot dot com? I think it's
0: dot C A. It's Phillipslayton.com. I just looked it up. <laughs> um, so that's that's where everyone can go. Thank you again for joining me. I really, I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, have a great night. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, exclusive access to full videos, and the opportunity to submit questions to select future guests ahead of interviews and live streams. Plus, you can DM me to your heart's content and I will reply. Another great way to follow and support my work is by becoming a paid subscriber on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca. This ensures you don't miss a single episode allows you to engage with the ever-vibrant comment section, access my periodic newsletters, and read my Substack-only articles. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon, subscribing on Substack, or donating directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash thesamedrugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.